Welcome everybody to episode 224 of the Better Beaters 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And I am David, and what are we going to talk about today? We're talking, we're talking, uh, we're talking about the most high. <laughs> that must no, mean. <laughs> no, not what you're thinking. We're talking about the most high beep the meep. Yeah. And 60th anniversary and Marvel comics and crossovers and all that kind of good stuff, right? Yeah. Beep the meep. Deep cut. Definitely. Well, not, not a deep cut if you're a comics fan. You're not big into comics, right? Let's get no. that off the roster to start with. Yeah. I am not the comic connoisseur of the Marvel and now Panini universe, uh, Doctor Who magazine. Right. But what I say deep cut is uh, this uh, beep the meep is from Doctor Who weekly i mean this is from 1980 this character villain was introduced so it goes back well it precedes my fandom even because really? we here in uh, the states in minnesota where i grew up i don't think uh, i started watching tom baker doctor who until 1981 could you get doctor who weekly at that time probably not i wouldn't have known because i would have been uh yeah i would have would have went into shinder's newsstand Right, and right. I don't believe in the early 1980s. It wasn't until the 20th anniversary time frame that I recall start seeing Doctor Who Monthly right. in the newsstands. From then on, you would pick up a physical copy, right? Occasionally, yeah. They were prohibitively expensive, so I would have right. to choose with my birthday money or Christmas cash <laughs> right. uh, what I wanted to get. And usually as a Dungeons & Dragons book or module right. or some kind of supplement because they were roughly equivalent. Wow, that is expensive. And it would either feature Davison or Colin Baker by the time I, I was getting it. And neither of those could outcompete with the uh, allure of... Dungeons, Dungeons and, dra Dungeons and Dragons. Dragons. Um, so would you read the comic strip or would you just kind of ignore that completely? Well, I picked up them so sporadically that any trying to follow any kind of narrative, right. it was kind of pointless. So I just kind of ignored it because if it was a story that took place, you know, if you picked up an issue that was in the middle of the story or the beginning of the story, you didn't want to get hooked into it because you wouldn't understand if it was middle and the beginning, you wouldn't be able to follow through. And if it was at the end spoilers so i thought well maybe one day i'd get a hold of these but yeah right. i never never really uh, came across beep the meep in its natural format i did pick up the first series of dww comics in a compilation a colorized compilation about oh, a okay. decade ago okay. so i watched watched i read iron legion and star beast and those first right. uh three so that's, four so that's, strips so that's 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 the first time you became aware of beep the meep yeah, it wasn't until the compilation DWW comic strip released wow. came out. Okay, interesting. Because Beep the Meep has had cameos in uh, Doctor Who Monthly ever since. Very popular character, yeah. But it never popped into my uh, radar. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Well, so I sporadically read Doctor Who Weekly on a weekly basis. Like you, um, this is 1979, 80 or so, yeah. I was having to ensure that my uh, meager pocket money went towards the most efficacious mag <laughs> magazines. <laughs> um, and so I would pick up Doctor Who Weekly when I, when I liked the cover. Right. I read The Iron Legion, which I thought was awesome. And then I also have very strong fond memories of the uh, the next story, um, City of the Damned. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also read Star Beast. But after then, I think I would, then I was away at school and 
I really was getting a lot more into 2000 AD, the kind of the weekly um, anthology uh, comic book that's still going strong in Britain, which, of course, ironically, Dave Gibbons and Pat Mills and John Wagner were integral mm-hmm. uh, creators for that uh, for that comic. Indeed, Pat Mills was the first editor and the person who developed 2000 AD from scratch in 1977. So we should interject here, Pat Mills and John Wagner were the creators of Star Beast, the writers of Star Beast. Yes. And though, then Dave Gibbons was the artist. Dave, Dave Gibbons is the artist. Uh, the Star Beast is Pat Mills. Mills and Wagner... Wagner has had a lot of writing partners, primarily Alan Grant, um, who's a fellow mm-hmm. Scot. Okay. But Wagner and Mills never partnered together on writing duties. Um, I, as I understand it, these first four stories in Doctor Who Weekly, basically they alternated. So Iron Legion is Pat Mills, City of the Damned is, is Wagner, um, Star Beast is Mills, and then the uh, blanking on the next one is Wagner again, John Wagner, Dogs of Doom. Um, and if you know, if you know the work of Pat Mills and John Wagner, which I do. It's really distinctive that that um, Star Beast and Legion is is a, a, a Mills joints and um, uh, Dogs and um, and City of the Damned are definitely Wagner work. So they kind of had a Lennon and McCartney agreement with crediting themselves, I guess. Yeah, I mean they're very very different people. Pat Mills is a very un- not very unusual individual. Um, he is a very distinctive individual. And John Wagner is also a very distinctive individual. Um, interesting, Wagner was actually for the first, I think, 10, 12 years of his life lived in the United States and Pennsylvania um, huh. um, and re- relocated back to Scotland when his mother divorced his father. It was a military wedding. It was a military marriage. Mm-hmm. And his mother moved back to Scotland and took him with him. Pat Mills has always been a uh, seen himself as a radical force in comics and a lot of that kind of radical stuff comes through in his writing wagner maybe less so wagner's certainly more of a uh, uh more of a screenwriter pat mills very very detailed scripts wagner's scripts tend to be um a lot more kind of sketchy but um but yeah uh, but as i said both of those two individuals were are absolutely key to the development of British comics. Right. John Wagner came up with Judge Dredd um, with Pat Mills. Well, Pat Mills came up with that concept and Wagner and Alan Grant kind of ran with the Judge Dredd character, which is, you know, this kind of, he's the, it's the key character, the kind of Superman of British comics, though a very, very different, very different style of story. Judge Dredd was in 2080? Was 2080. He's the, the anchor, the anchor character. So who's like a, Fascistic kind of lawman of the lawman of the future, right. um, judge, jury, and executioner. So set in this 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 giant city, Mega City One, um, which is ruled by the judges who have the the, the right. Actually, is actually American policemen have nowadays um, to execute you if they feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mills basically came up with the concept of 2000 AD. He also was uh, integral in developing action comic, which was like an absolutely key comic in the development of British comics. But the big difference here between American comics and, uh, and British comics, um, which is, I think, brought out very neatly reading and looking at their work for Doctor Who Weekly, is that British comics are, are episodic and tend to be anthologies. Hmm. 
so you don't get standalone titles. So you go into an American comic shop and ooh, it's Spider Man. You buy a Spider Man book and it's thirty pages of Spider Man. Right. Um, you go you into British comics again. They weren't really comic shops at that time. There were, but comics were on the newsstand. You pick up a comic and they were anthology. So you get thirty pages of uh, war comics, thirty pages of sci-fi comics, and those comics would include four or five, four to five page stories in each in each comic book. So there's a lot of cliffhanger work, far more than with American comics, and the storytelling is a lot tighter and a lot more action-orientated and propulsive than American comics can be. And again, you know, this idea of the cliffhanger. So if you if you have a story that you have to tell in four or five-page chunks right. over 10 weeks... That's an interesting discipline because each each episode has to end with a cliffhanger so that the kid wants to buy next week's issue. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next five-page chunk, the first page, has to recap the, pre the last page of the previous issue. So you're very much kind of reducing the amount of storytelling space you have, which makes that storytelling a lot more economical. And a lot more, I said, a lot more, uh, a lot more dense. Though, again, Pat Mills... I think was instrumental in kind of expanding that density. Uh, he started out, Mill started out writing girls' comics, um, which again, a very strong subgenre in British comics, mm, okay. um, where the stories are a lot more kind of soap opera based. And Mill's brought some of that kind of soap opera sensibility to British sci-fi and war comics. Um, I mean, his most famous creation at this time the creation at this time that I am most keen on <laughs> um, is Charlie's War, which is a, which is was a World War One comic strip for Battle Comic, which was then merged with Action and became mm -hmm. Battle Action, and that's very much a soap proper story. So it's a, it's kind of a long form. It has cliffhangers and it has recaps, but you're really you're it's telling the story of this boy soldier in World War One. So there's some background for our American listener. Yeah, it was actually kind of extraordinary to see Mills and Wagner producing Doctor Who material. And I, again, I, I understand both of them had submitted scripts, I think, in the Graham Williams era, and that had been difficult because the money wasn't really available um, right. to, to make their stories right. for Doctor Who. And again, as I understand it, some of these scripts were kind of revised and redone for Doctor Who Weekly. And then uh, I think Mills has also written stuff a lot more recently for Big Finish. Um, and notably Song of the Space Whale, which was, I think, a pitch that he made for the Davison era hmm. of, uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the show, um, rejected because you know, the special effects were not up to what Mills wanted to do. And, of course, the great thing about comics is you don't have to worry about money that's spent um, because mm -hmm. all you have to do is just... Um, Hire Dave Gibbons. <laughs> yeah, all you've got to do is just hire Dave Gibbons, who, again, is a, an absolute kind of legend of British comics. Um, he's not my favorite artist, I'll have to say, mm. and I could discourse on why that is, but he certainly is extremely reliable, very accurate, very much versed in kind of U.S. comics lore and uh, the, the kind of style of writing U.S. comics. I think his most famous, um, certainly, uh, you know, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, his most famous collaboration with Alan Moore on Watchmen. And so Watchmen obviously was this kind of key... Mm -hmm. Key comic book series, along with Dark Knight, which kind of exploded comics into sort of this more kind of adult genre right. in the mid in the mid ninety days. But that's Dave Gibbons, nice guy. Met him a couple of times, 
one of the different things, again, between American comics and British comics is the method of, of drawing them. American comics tend to have a penciler and then an inker and then a colorist. So one person does the pencils, that those pages then get passed over to an inker who then does all the blacks, all the inks, yep. um, and then eventually you know, an acetate gets passed over to a colorist who produces the color. British comics, this certainly this period, were always in black and white. Right. Very, really not colored at all, but these, these were black and white. And the artist would do both the penciling and the inking, which to me makes for, I think, for a more distinctive look to a comic. You know, Marvel and DC, the American comic companies, had style guides. You had to produce work in a particular way. That wasn't this wasn't so for British comics. So you get so there's a lot more. Uh, they tend to be a lot more stylish, mm-hmm. um, and the artist has a lot more control about what's on the page. It mm-hmm. takes longer, but then the idea was is that they possibly would be uh, would be paid more. So that's uh, yeah, yeah. So that's just a little little bit little bit of background on um, on Dave Gibbons. Well, Gibbons is probably mostly responsible for the look of Beep the Meep. I'm, I'm sure he was given the concept or described in words what uh, Mills. Mills and Wagner had in mind. Yeah. But Beep the Meep is this kind of a blue round critter with uh, a head and big ears and big doughy eyes when he's trying to look sweet. And uh, <laughs> it kind of predates anime, mainstream anime type characters. It's 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 a It's a fuzzy furry character it's like uh, the movie gremlins where you have the sweet beast that isn't quite so sweet <laughs> right right which yeah yeah absolutely um it, it predates gremlins right uh, i think so when, yes when did gremlins come out yeah that would be probably mid 80s i would yeah, guess yeah 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 so i mean this i mean reading this story as 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 again you know quite recently which i did and obviously in preparation for this podcast i mean it is it is very very pat millsy it's really kind of distinctive. This kind of strong female lead, um, who yep. incidentally Sharon Davies. So Sharon Davies is the um, I think the first um, uh, a non-white companion in Doctor Who history, and that's a typical Mills move um, to have a, like an idiot boyfriend. That's a or idiot male companion. <laughs> that's a typical Mills move. The kind yep. of um, bait and switch, or the kind of you know pull back and reveal aspect of Beep the Meep is actually the villain, uh, and the Wrath Warriors are actually the, the good guys. Again, that's typically Mills. I mean, even down. I mean, at the same time that he was writing this story, he was writing Robusters um, for 2000 AD, and the the famous Charlie storyline um, in Robusters was set in Northpool, um, which was Mills's alternate were, alternate universe, Liverpool. Um, this story is set in Black Castle, which is Mills's alternate universe, Newcastle. So again, you know, very, 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 uh, very distinctive Mills stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the separation of, uh, well, the delay in colorization, I was talking with Elliot, and Elliot said when Beep the Meep was colorized, people were not happy with it being blue. <laughs> Because uh, they thought it was white, or pictured it in different colors. Well, this um, well, I think I think in general, uh, certainly from from my position, when when uh, black and white comics are colorized for people who are too lazy to imagine things in color when they're in black and white, that's outrageous in general. I mean, this 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 comic was drawn to be black and white, not drawn to be color. Um, problem is, it's very, very difficult to sell black and white comics. Almost impossible to sell mainstream black and white comics in, in the United States. Um, comics have hmm. to be coloured. 
Um, and that, that is a consistent problem with moving British properties originally drawn in black and white over, over to the United States. Um, there's also a format difficulty as well, and that's not really the case with Doctor Who Weekly, which was in a, I think was, was drawn in a Marvel format, but certainly the 2000 AD was in a square, a square format, so the pages are, are differently, are, are, are the wrong size for the American comic mm-hmm. stand. Um, so that often can be a problem. You, so when British comics are redone for the American market, they have to be colorized. And then they, sometimes they were stretched. Um, so they actually literally stretched the image so that it, so that it filled a standard American comic page. So everybody looked really tall. Yeah, just like what they're doing with widescreen. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a widescreen problem, exactly. So they stretch them, yep. or they have a big band of white at the bottom, which kind of looks weird. Yep. Or for some comics, whether they have a direct access to the artist and they have money, extra panels are drawn in to kind of fill in, fill in the gap. Um, but as I said, the, at, at this time, Doctor Who, well, Doctor Who Weekly was a Marvel property. It was developed by Des yep. Skin, who is again one of the one of the kind of key originators, particularly of uh, TV slash movie comics properties in the UK. And you know, Des was working with for Marvel comics at that time. And of course, if you pull out your original copy of Doctor Who Weekly, it's Stan Lee presents. Doctor Who and the Iron Legion. Yep. Um, so this is this yep. is a Marvel comic. Um, Stan Lee mm-hmm. is usual is um, delivering the goods, the thrills that you that you require from your from your from your comics. Um, so this is so this is I mean, which again I think is something that we were going to get onto. I guess I'm I'm kind of monopolizing the conversation at the moment. But anyway, mm-hmm. is that um, this seems to be some kind of marker that. Technically speaking, Doctor Who is part of the... So having so having beat the meep in the TV show for the 60th anniversary is kind of saying, okay, really, Doctor Who is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, made all possible by Disney owning Marvel and financing in part uh, Doctor Who now. Exactly. So again, technically speaking, the Doctor could turn up in an MCU movie. Hmm. How do you feel about that? I don't think I like that idea at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy would be an ideal film series for the Doctor to turn up in. But, you know, the Doctor could be in New York with Spider-Man or whatever city Spider-Man is in. I'm not a big fan of the MCU in general. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I don't like Marvel movies. I think uh, I, I, well, I don't like superhero movies in, in general. I think they are kind of reductive and really are all exactly the same, which is kind of a shame. But um, I would be kind of excited to see David Tennant or Shuti Gadwa, I think more, more likely, turn up in a Guardians of the Galaxy movie or an, or an Avengers movie. I think that would be really interesting. A cameo or would, as a main character? Who knows? I don't know. I think in a, in a kind of a mainstream kind of, you know, the Avengers storyline um, MCU series, I think a cameo, but certainly something like like Guardians of the Galaxy could be a main character. Hmm. We'll see where that leads, I guess, because uh, Disney, I'm sure, will want to get their money's worth out of branding and uh, disseminating worldwide outside of the UK, Doctor Who. Yeah, and I, th- and I think Shooty is very marketable. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the reasons why I think why I think we're getting this 60 years this one year of David Tennant is, is I mean, Shooty has a very 
busy shooting schedule. Um, mm. Wow, there's a lot of SCH words <laughs> in one <laughs> in one in one sentence. Uh, you know, he's just about to be in the Barbie movie, um, which is one of the That's big temple temple movies this summer. So, unlike I think perhaps all doctors, he is the doctor actor who has the greatest potential international impact um, or international um, uh, appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, it was very, dis- very disappointing. It was disappointing for me watching, as I did recently, the Suicide Squad movie, which has Peter Capaldi in it, who has about 10 seconds of actually being Peter Capaldi and the rest of the rest of the movie, he's completely generic. Mm. Um, so really, really kind of wasted. But, you know, when, when, when Doctor, when British actors turn up in any kind of American movie, we're always like villains or bit parts, basically. Though I have to say, the actually the main character in the Suicide Squad is played by um, uh, Idris Elba. Idris Elba, thank you very much. So yeah, ironically, the the main the main character in the Suicide Squad is played by Idris Elba, who's who's a Brit. Though of course, Idris Elba first turned up in America in The Wire, playing an American. The the two main characters in The Wire are both British actors who can do excellent American accents, um, so no one can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, very long-windedly, not really answering your question, but yeah, I think that would be kind of awesome and entirely possible mm-hmm. and may form part of what's going on here. It also it means that more DWM comic or DWW uh, comic uh, creations might cross over into the live action thing, and I think uh, the two biggest candidates would be Absalom Dark and... Possibly Frobisher. I think Frobisher is more controversial than Absalom Dark being in there. I th- again, I, I think the technology is there to have Frobisher. Let's have Frobisher. I'm, I said, I mean, as long as the, the, these British creators get paid, and again, I was just reading on the internet, so who knows? This is from in Bleeding Cool that, that both Mills and Wagner, well, it said Mills, Wagner, and Gibbons were, would have been on the set. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to take all of this with a pinch of salt. I very much doubt Mills was there because he's not, he's not, a, he's not a going on set kind of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Wagner, possibly, um, certainly Dave Gibbons would go on the set of anything at the drop of a hat. So, um, but I mean, as long as people get their, you know, get their dues and aren't ripped off by a giant corporation, i.e. Disney, then I think all, all this is great. Mm-hmm. And as you said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here. Absalom Dark could definitely have be, be a character who could have his own spin-off, possibly. I don't know. Just to, well, we said we have the technology to do a, a pretty convincing CGI penguin. Um, yeah, I, I, I just I, I'd like to have Frobisher. <laughs> Shooty and Frobisher, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, again, as, lo- as long as he gets in- introduced by um, um, by the Sixth Doctor in some kind of way, um, uh, but then you know he can, he can just he can just go off with um, Dolphy Shooty and. And all will be well. With the Star Beast, Pat Mills' story and uh, Russell T. Davis bringing Beep the Meep into the live action universe, I'm wondering if Beep the Meep is going to be stretched across the three uh, 60th anniversary specials and effectively Rose, uh, uh, Donna's daughter, is going to take on the role of Sharon. Maybe could and be a re- retelling of the original of Star the, Beast, of the beat the beat the meat saga. A couple of things. Um, one, I think both Russell Davis and actually, again, I read here David Tennant read Doctor Who Weekly. Um, so uh, both of them yep. remember reading Beat the Meep as basically children. Russell T. Davis is a big comics fan. We know that. Um, he's referenced Halo Jones. 
and other 2000D properties in creating storylines for Doctor Who, I think most particularly in Gridlock, which has actually has Judge Dredd characters in it, if you look carefully. Huh. I'm kind of uncredited, but certainly Max Normal is definitely in that story. He's one of one of the people in who's uh, who's in one of those casts. Um, what kind of interests me, though, here is cross-referencing what I know about what's going on next year or this year for these for these anniversary specials. One of which is we have Beat the Meat and the Wrath Warriors. So basically we have the Star Beast storyline. Yep. But we also have Neil Patrick Harris. Um, and Neil Patrick Harris apparently is the proprietor of some kind of toy shop. So there's been a lot of, I think, online speculation that Neil Patrick Harris could be either perhaps the Celestial Toymaker mm-hmm. or maybe the Master of the Land of Fiction. One of those two things that seems to be maybe being signaled a little bit, which is kind of interesting, I find, because what we're seeing here is fictional characters from Doctor Who comic books being introduced into live-action Doctor Who. It seems to me that maybe... This could be David Tennant. Um, this could be the the Doctor and Donna falling into the land of fiction mm. and getting involved in a storyline from a fictionalized part of their history. In riffing off that, one of the Beep the Meeps appearances in later era was a one off strip by Alan Barnes, um, TV action, I think, basically, right. where uh, the Eighth Doctor, the Paul McGann Doctor, and right. his uh, uh, comic strip companion Izzy landed in BBC Television Center, and Beep the Meep was there, and he had basically taken over many, many of the uh, television personalities, and he was trying to broadcast uh, Black Star Energy uh, throughout. Britain and they were thwarted by the actor Tom Baker talking piffle, <laughs> piffle distracting Beep the Meep while Beep the Meep quietly stews and Izzy was able to do something to uh, circumvent the plans and then the like the the punchline the spoiler and, and you know this is a twenty year old comic so I don't feel too bad about it but the spoiler is uh, the last last panel is Paul McGann looking at the very first issue of Doctor Who Weekly. And saying this explains it all, so with his eyes kind of bugging out, so it was a crossover into the land of reality, the fictional land into reality. So it'd be I could see where the prior art of Beep the Meat might even trigger what you were suggesting with the land of fiction going back into a, a previous adventure. Yeah, absolutely. We so we already have a meta narrative. Right. I mean, this is what's I think you know always kind of exciting about the. The the and I say cheapness. I mean they're still expensive to produce, but they're cheaper than than the movies or TV. Comic books, you know, can do that meta stuff really easily because the stakes are usually pretty low. Hmm. I think again, just to give some trivia, Alan Barnes uh, was has been an editor was an editor at um, of the the 2000 AD, and so obviously knows British comics very well. TV action was where the Doctor Who comic book comic yeah. strip first started. So there's a there's kind of meta stuff there already. It's rings within rings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I mean this this may be too complex for the kind of audience that Russell Davis is pitching the sixtieth anniversary show to. Yeah. Or Russell T. Davies, a big comic fan, now and sort of involved with Disney and therefore Marvel, they may feel, you know, a la kind of Deadpool or something, that actually audiences for Doctor Who are ready for all this kind of meta nonsense. 
and that Neil Patrick Harris, Master of the Land of Fiction, manages to dump Doctor and Donna into a comic strip story that was written for a previous a previous Doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, that would take a lot of on-screen explaining, but uh, I certainly would find it very exciting because that's the kind of stuff I like. You wouldn't have to explain it, though. You would think fans of a certain age or a certain background would know this, and you could tell the story pretty much straightforwardly without having to say, well, you know, as an aside, well, yes, this actually happened in 1980 in a comic strip and during the Paul McGann era and DWM. And I, I don't think you need to do that. I think you can just hint around it and they become Easter eggs to the established fandom and new viewers or people just coming in for David Tennant. It adds to the richness, but it doesn't just detract from the story that you need to stop the action and explain what's going on. Right, right. Yeah, again, I mean, is... As you just described with the with the TV action story, the Doctor can just hold up a copy of Doctor Who Weekly and, you know, ooh, it's all explained in here. Or, you know, maybe it's resolved by the tenant, the 14th Doctor, finding a copy of Doctor Who Weekly somewhere and then realizing that that's how he gets to foil Beep the Meep. Who knows? Um, right. Yeah. It'd be very... Kind of bootstrapping. I mean, we had that sort of meta-ness in Remembrance of the Daleks where... Ace was just about to watch next on BBC television, uh, right. exciting space and time adventure with Doc. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I, again, I'm I'm finding all this stuff kind of exciting and interesting because I mean I'm big into comics and big into kind of Doctor Who comics. Do you have a similar level of excitement and interest, or are you like, Ugh, no, less of this, please? I just wonder uh, if this is Doctor Who crawling up inside itself a little bit too much. Instead of moving forward with new villains, new stories, we're becoming too referential and looking backwards. I mean, I'm not overly worried about it because I think RTD generally is very good with existing properties. Uh, One only has to look at how he handled the Daleks in uh, the 2005 series with Eccleston. Right. But he does have a tendency to try to outbig things, but maybe reining it in with some grounded canon or grounded previous stories with uh, Star Beast and either Celestial Toymaker or the Master of the Land of Fiction might provide the anchors that he needs to keep it from spiraling away from him too. Yeah, and I think I think you know it's 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 possible that you know what we're seeing cuz already we've got there's a slight meta stuff going on already by having David Tennant playing the 14th Doctor. I not regenerating back into the 10th Doctor, but actually playing a new Doctor that looks like an old... You know, there's already some meta stuff right. going. So, I mean, maybe what what's happening is that Russell T. Davies is giving himself, because no one else is going to, giving himself permission um, for this 60th year to just go crazy in terms of kind of metering up um, the narrative before we slam back into the continued adventures of the, of the 15th Doctor, Shooty Gadwa in conjunction with, you know, Walt Disney and the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, who knows? So that is an interesting point, too, because it could be that this is the 60th anniversary year that RTD would want to sample bits of Doctor Who history, the right. canon, uh, going back through through time. So you'd have a villain from the 60s. You'd have a villain from the 70s, which we obviously don't know yet. But then we have Beep the Meep from the early 80s, the 80s. And then you can imagine 
maybe there will be some kind of tie-in with uh, Paul McGann. And then I'm sure we have, we, well, Tenant obviously is a reference to the, the, to the knots. And, you know, who knows? We can certainly have uh, these uh, cameos or uh, callbacks to previous eras of Doctor Who to celebrate the 60th anniversary. And ordinarily, I think if we were talking about, well, okay, I'm wildly exaggerating for effect, but anyway, I mean, ordinarily, this would be ringing alarm bells like all across my control console at this point. There'd be like a aruga, aruga. <laughs> but this is Russell T. Davis, who I think is able to pull off stuff like this. Uh, this is kind of right in Russell's, um, you know, ballpark, a wheelhouse or whatever mm-hmm. the DJ is. He's very confident with this kind of activity. You know, he has immense confidence as a writer. Um, he has, uh, which is entirely deserved because he's had immense success as a writer. Um, I think, he, you know, if this is what he's doing, I think it's probably going to work and not be an abject and weird failure as it mm. could be in the hands in the hands of others. It's going to have giant holes in it that, that will be, you know, hand wavy and will be will be employed to well that Moffat will want to come back in the 70th to okay. <laughs> try to stitch those all together exactly <laughs> but I mean that's fine that's good you know I'm, I'm thinking of kind of you know the stolen earth that final two-parter was kind of billed as a as a kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe every you know all the all the Avengers come together and you know defeat the big bad which is Davros's plan to destroy all reality for some reason. Yeah, and then there's a lot of kind of like, well, okay, what's going on? Okay, well, I'll explain later. Yeah. But I mean, it kind of works and it's incredibly enjoyable. And what, what I always like about Russell T. Davis's work is that he does prioritize enjoyability over everything else. Yep. That his job, I think he sees his job is, is to entertain people. And therefore, what he writes is always entertaining, even if it is, you know, incredibly serious work. Like Midnight to Turn Left, or you know, it's a sin, or, or, or years and years. You know, there's some incredibly serious stuff that he wants to talk about. It is always fun to watch and is entertaining, and and has a uh, a kind of a, a levity to it, which is which is which some other writers from Doctor Who uh, find hard to to kind of leaven their work, so it's so it's fun for people to experience. So yeah, so I mean, I think. As long as they can get the CGI right with both the Wrath Warriors and Beep the Meat, which, again, they wouldn't be doing this this if they couldn't get the CGI right, I hope. I think this is going to be great, and I'm really looking forward to it, and it's making me very excited about November. The thing I'm most interested in seeing is what the Wrath Warriors, how they realize the Wrath Warriors' uh, digited tongue. Right, yeah, the kind of alien-style <laughs> tongue that comes out. Yeah, yeah which you can, you can do. It could do that. That's that. That can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm totally on board for this. And uh, RTD is not making any uh, secrets of this. He, this is all in uh, his column in DWM. So this is uh, he. He is using this to uh, entice uh, the readers of, uh, especially long-term readers of Doctor Who Monthly magazine to tune in. Yeah, and that monthly column has, has, again, has become indispensable reading. And again, I think it's so interesting if you look at the two other showrunners and their struggles to produce a monthly column. I mean, basically, Moffat just gave up and said, I'm not going to be, I'm just not going to do this. Um, having done like sporadic monthly columns for, you know, a year or so. And then Chibnall maybe did two, um, two or three um, in his, in, in, in his tenure. Russell T. Davis, every month you get, 500 whatever it is words on Doctor Who. I, I, I don't know where he finds the time, actually, to do all the stuff that he does. 
he seems to be absolutely present all the time and always writing things. I mean, he's just he's just so constantly around and doing things. Um, I just don't. I said I have no idea where he finds the time or the energy, to be honest. Hopefully he uh, there you go. is having an easier time than he described in the writer's tale to finish up stories. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's time to maybe it's time to reread the writer's tale because yeah, that's a that that didn't sound like a very happy experience. No, it was was not a happy time yeah. for him. I think it was stressful a stressful time. time to generate ideas. Uh, but you know, he's he's had he's had fifteen or so years to to kind of work through that. So you know, maybe it's easier. But as I said, social media wise, he's sort of inescapable and always entertaining. And always genuine, and you never a dick about stuff, which is kind of unusual for social media. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. He's he's a he's an extraordinary extraordinary individual. Yeah, yeah. indeed, indeed. So yeah. any any other final thoughts on Beep the Meep or g- general crossover with the Marvel Doctor Who universe? Um, not really. I mean, there, there, I mean, there was an actual crossover. Um, I mean, a literal crossover with um, a very minor Marvel character called Death's Head who directly crossed over from Marvel Comics into the Doctor Who comics um, with the Sylvester McCoy Doctor, um, mm-hmm. uh, with the Eighth Doctor. Um, so they've done that. So we know that can be done. I just hope that we have people who are running this show who understand how to do this stuff right. And I think Russell T. Davis does know how to do this kind of crossover stuff effectively. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that whatever counterparts he may or may not be working with at, at Marvel slash Disney, I um, may also have a good idea of how this stuff works. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is, there do start to be direct crossovers. I think again, having Shuti Gadwar as the Doctor is a, is perfect because he has a, an international sensibility. And what I hope we won't get, and I don't think we would get under under Russell T. Davis, is the kind of like, ooh, it's the, would you like a jelly baby? And here's a cup of tea. I'm the doctor. You know, that kind of American nonsense hmm. about how Doctor Who is often kind of mediated over here. I think there's a real opportunity to be to be international about this. I mean, it was actually, it was kind of interesting. I mean, just, just rereading Wagner and Mills, um, who obviously basing their doctor off their very sporadic, and not very often watching of the sh- watching of the show. Um, well, maybe they've watched it more recently than Alan Moore did. So. Yeah, that's true. Alan Moore <laughs> notoriously hates every Doctor after William Hartnell. In fact, Alan Moore hates every property after about he was about twelve years old. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, you know, it's, it's it's just funny, kind of reading the way that they write the Fourth Doctor, which is the, the dialogue is sort of you know what everybody sort of expects the Tom Baker Doctor to be like. When in fact he was never like that in the show, um, which I I always find kind of um, kind of funny and interesting. I mean, like that conversation we were having about the Peter Cushing Doctor basing his Doctor on the Doctor from the comic strips rather than the Doctor from the um, you know from the TV show. Yeah. yeah. How soon do you think it'll be before we see uh, plushies of Beep the Meep? Beep the Meep. Well, yeah, plushie, you kind of squeeze it and like, ah, big teeth come out something. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it, I don't know. Adipose is certainly a, a stuffed critter. We have an Adipose around the, around the house somewhere. He's, he's, always, he's always like holding a door open or closed. <laughs> As <laughs> one does. Because he's that kind of plushie. Yep, yep. Yeah, so again, you know, people like me who love to collect the merchandise and the action figures and stuff, yeah, definitely hoping that they'll be... Um, 
a reboot of character options' ability to to mass manufacture a Doctor Who toys that everybody can have, not just yeah. people who can get to yeah. a and M yeah. um, on a regular basis. All right. So yeah, so yeah, I, I'm 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 very gung ho for this. It's exciting. I think it's all going to work well. I'm confident. I I trust Russell T Davis, and I think this is going to be yeah. I'm curious to see what happens. All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 224 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been learning all about uh, Doctor Who comics and British comics in general from Ben. And I've been totally monopolizing the conversation with David. (laughs) Until next time. Beep those meeps. Bring the beep. Okay, that's a good background. Goodness. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, wasn't just being positive for the for the podcast. I, yeah, I'm actually kind of like this. You know, the one's instant reaction to kind of uh, beat the meat kind of character is like, uh, what is that? But if you just delve into the background of it, you know, this is, I don't know, it's a possible signifier for exciting things in the future. The character has such a rich history of Doctor Who. It, it'd be a shock if it wasn't used in the mainstream television at some point. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think again, you know, who knows whether this idea about you know masters of the land of fiction and stuff, whether that actually is a thing that's happening. But that will be an idea that Russell D. Davis has had. Yeah, whether it's an idea he can actually make work in terms of a story, who knows? But that's what he's been thinking about, definitely. Yeah, Moffat had mixed success with the Great Intelligence, so it's we will see. It's a mixed bag when you delve back into the '60s and try to pull something into the present. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I think, um, yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Alrighty. Cool. Okay, all right, I will get this off to you ASAP. Bring the beep.